0: Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters.
1: This week on Babel, John speaks with Professor Greg Gause about President Biden's upcoming trip to Saudi Arabia. Then, John, Natasha, and I zoom out for a more analytical discussion about how the trip came to be.
0: To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Gregory Gause is professor of international affairs in the John H. Lindsay, class of 44 chair at Texas A&M University and a longstanding expert on Saudi Arabia. Greg, welcome to Babel. It's a pleasure to be back. President Biden is just about to go to Saudi Arabia. What do you think he's going to come back with? I think he's going to come
2: back with probably more symbolic than real commitments on oil. The Saudis have already agreed to accelerate their production increases under the OPEC plus plan. I think that they'll sell that again as a concession, quote unquote, to the United States. And I think he'll come back with some kinds of commitments that the Saudis will use their market power and their spare production capacity to try to even out the world oil market. And I think that that will be something that he'll be able to use domestically. I think in some ways, the more important foreign policy discussion is going to be about what happens after the Iran talks fail. My assumption is that we're not going to be able to get back to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And there will be incentives for Iran, domestic incentives and regional incentives for them to indicate that they might be moving closer toward weaponization. And at that point, I think there's going to be a lot of questions raised in the region about what the United States is going to do, what the Israelis are going to do, what the Gulf states are going to do. And some kind of coordination on that, I think, might be the even more significant thing that the Biden administration comes back with.
0: For the Saudis, it seems to be a very important visit, that the U.S. relationship is extraordinarily important to Saudi Arabia. And you could argue that the Saudis are getting a lot more out of this visit than Biden is, even if you say it's symbolic on both sides. There's a way in which The United States is inarguably important to Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia isn't inarguably important to the United States. Are the Saudis getting more than the president is? So I think that before we get to the Saudis in terms of national interests,
2: we need to ask ourselves what the crown prince is getting out of this. And I don't think that we should underestimate his desire to be, forgiven is the wrong word, but maybe rehabilitated in the American diplomatic sphere after the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. Obviously, the Trump administration did a lot to protect him from the intense American reaction. I don't want to exaggerate this. It wasn't a huge public opinion issue, but I think in elite opinion in Washington, particularly among Democrats, the assassination of Khashoggi and the Crown Prince's responsibility for his death was a real shock. I think that Democrats had a particularly negative view of the crown prince after the Khashoggi murder. And we saw that in the campaign. President Biden used pretty brutal language about the crown prince specifically in Saudi Arabia in general. And I think that this is the crown prince using this particular moment when oil prices are high. He's using the leverage that Saudi Arabia has to get himself personally rehabilitated In a democratic administration. So I think that that's really important for the Saudis. What the US gets out of that in exchange, I think, is a return to, if you will, a more normal kind of relationship where the president of the United States can call the leadership of Saudi Arabia and say, hey, you've got to help us out on oil questions. And I think that that is probably the most immediate, tangible thing. But as I said, I also think that there's a lot of coordination that's going to have to happen when tensions with Iran inevitably rise if we don't get back to JCPOA.
0: You mentioned Ukraine. Do you think this visit would be happening were there not a crisis in
2: Ukraine? I kind of doubt it would be happening were it not a crisis in Ukraine, if only because I think if there weren't a crisis in Ukraine, oil prices might not have spiked as high as they did And I think that's the driver for the addition of Saudi Arabia. I think probably the president would have gone to the Middle East anyway, but I'm not sure he would have included Saudi Arabia on the itinerary.
0: There is a regional summit that is connected to this visit. What do you think is possible for the president to get out of a regional summit, both in terms of public statements and assurances, private? What do you think he's going to give to the regional summit? I think the regional
2: summit, at least behind the closed doors, is going to be a lot about Iran. And I think that the ancillary issues to Iran and Iran's role in the region and Iran's nuclear program, Iranian influence in Iraq or the Houthis and the Yemeni situation, I do think that one of the deliverables that might come out of the visit to Saudi Arabia is an offer of an indefinite truce on Yemen and perhaps even some diplomatic movements there that the Saudis would accept and accept an American role in pushing that. But But of course, if tensions with Iran escalate, because we don't get back into JCPOA, that greatly reduces the possibility that the Iranians would use their influence with the Houthis to push for some kind of diplomatic settlement. So I do think that Iran is going to be at the top of the agenda. I think the regional meeting is also one way for the United States to say, look, We're not simply going back to business as usual with Mohammed bin Salman. We are there for a multilateral meeting, but the crown prince is going to get his photo op. He's going to get his handshake.
0: You've argued a couple of times in foreign affairs in the last few months that the US is properly focused on trying to reestablish order in the Middle East. Can you just give us a sense of what you think the core of that argument is? Sure. I think that
2: the biggest geopolitical issue in the Middle East is actually not Iranian nuclear weapons or the Yemen civil war or oil prices. I think that the biggest overall geopolitical issue is the weakness of so many Arab states, the civil wars and civil disorders that are occurring in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria, In Lebanon, in Libya. Some of these are the direct result of the Arab uprisings of 2011. Some of them go back decades with the Lebanese civil war. But I think that as long as there are so many weakened Arab domestic situations, which just invite external intervention, you're going to have a very unsettled regional picture. And I think that the Iranians have demonstrated that. In countries that have a significant Shia population, they are able to play into the politics of these broken regimes and these broken states in a much better way than anybody else can. The Iranians have developed a playbook that includes the building of local militias with the support of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, not a lot of soldiers, right? but enough for training and helping out. They've been able to deploy those militias across borders with Hezbollah and militias from Iraq, and even Afghanistan participating in the Syrian civil war. They've been able to, at a very low cost, help to sustain the Houthi movement in Yemen. And while the Iranians have some money to spend on this, this isn't really about money. If it were about money, the Saudis would be much more successful than the Iranians in spreading their regional influence. The key here is having proxies and allies in these Arab civil wars and broken domestic systems who want to be Iran's allies, who want to be their partners in kind of the Iranian strategic view of the region. The Saudis don't have that. The Turks had hoped to have that with the Muslim Brotherhood but the Muslim Brotherhood really wasn't able to sustain its early gains in the post-Arab uprisings period. So it's really the Iranians who have been able to profit the most from the situation of domestic weakness throughout the Arab world.
0: There was a focus in the Obama administration about trying to create greater resilience among Arab states. Is this effort to strive for order something that leads to greater resilience? Or does it merely forestall the collapse of these states as they can't make a transition toward more diversified economies and dealing with the energy transition? I don't think that we have a playbook
2: that we can use to help these states develop that kind of domestic political and economic resilience. I don't know what we would tell them. Our playbook is basically from the 90s, right? It's democratize and adopt neoliberal economic policies. Well, that hasn't really worked to stabilize the region. So I don't think that we have the answers on that. When I talk about order, I basically mean deal with leaders and countries that have been able to maintain stability and order within their own borders and extend their influence across borders into these weaker, less orderly, less stable places. And that means Saudi Arabia, but it also means Iran. It also means Egypt. right? It also means, I think, over time, Syria, because I think the Assad regime, as loathsome as it is in many ways, is going to come out of this civil war still governing the country. To me, it's a minimal goal. I mean, we're not going to transform the Middle East. We tried that, and we failed. We tried to transform the region not only through the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, of the the direct imposition of new regimes in those places. But we also tried in the 90s through the Arab-Israeli peace process, through the encouragement of neoliberal economic policies and democratic reforms in the Clinton administration. And we really didn't succeed. I think that we ought to put aside this notion that we can change the politics of this region whether that is change it in a democratic direction or whether it's regime change in places we don't like, like Iran. And I think that we have to lower our expectations and deal with countries who can deal with us. I think we're really bad at dealing with militias. We're really bad at dealing with non-state actors. We're really bad at dealing with situations where there isn't a stable governing authority. But we're pretty good at dealing with countries that actually have a stable governing authority and want something from the international system because America is still powerful enough to be able to provide some of those goods that the international system provides and to withhold those goods through sanctions and other methods. So we have leverage in dealing with governments that are in power. We don't seem to have as much leverage with the non-state actors who are so much more important in these places where politics is broken.
0: A two-part question. First, are you confident that these governments can navigate the energy transition without having more open politics? And second, if they don't, what are the consequences of the United States having failed governments in the Middle East after the energy transition? Let me take the second one
2: first. I think that if we get to a real energy transition, and I think even if we make all the right choices, that's a project that will take a couple of decades, not a couple of years, we won't care if that part of the world is stable or unstable. At least it won't matter as much as it does today. And so I think to some extent, if we get the energy transition, the salience of the Middle East in terms of American interest goes way, way down. The first question about whether these countries can manage. So, can these countries sustain themselves and can these regimes sustain themselves in a time of energy transition? I think the really small, really rich ones can, the cutters, the Kuwaits, the Emiratis, because their populations are so small and their assets are so large, they will they will become true Rentier states in that they will live off their investments and they won't be as glitzy and they won't be as rich, but I think they'll probably be fine. It's the mid-level, right? A high producer, but relatively high population like Saudi or Iraq, a producer like Algeria with a pretty high population and much lower per capita hydrocarbon resources, they're the ones that are going to be much more problematic. I mean, we really only have one example of a hydrocarbon country facing decline in oil prices and opening up democratically. And that's Algeria, right, in the late 80s. And we know what happened there. We had a free election. The Islamist party won before the party could actually take power. The army intervened and you had a brutal civil war in Algeria. That's not a very good model for a successful transition. It's not that the leaders here don't know that they're facing these issues. Mohammed bin Salman's whole Vision 2030 project is trying to get Saudi Arabia to be less dependent on oil. He's clearly doing it on the model of what he sees the Emirates, right? Which is kind of the government becomes literally a state capitalist player through investment domestically, through investment internationally. And that's what MBS is trying to do. But he's also added in some amount of what I would call kind of 1960s developmentalism theory, which is build the big project, right? Neom, this futuristic city he wants to build up in the northwestern part of the country. Is that his Aswan Dam? Right, that was the centerpiece of of Egyptian development policy. It work out it. better
0: than if it were his Tushka. Yeah, yeah, Please.
2: exactly. Is it going to be the Aswan Dam, or is it going to be like those innumerable steel mills that were built all over the developing world that never could get up to a level of economic efficiency to actually break even? I don't know how it's going to turn out, but obviously this is on the agenda, and these folks are thinking about it. I am very pessimistic that you're going to see an economic transition that is accompanied by a stable
0: democratic transition. So as you look to an energy transition, in several decades, not immediately, and you argue that at the end of that transition, the U.S. really isn't going to care about the Middle East, how do you get the partnership of Middle East governments in that energy transition? How do you get them not to undermine it? As you know, both the Saudis and the Americans have been talking about how this meeting lays the groundwork for the next 70 years of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. It seems to me you're suggesting that there might not be much of a relationship after only 20 years.
2: Well, I think that aside from the bilateral relationship with the United States, these leaders want to have something that their sons and grandsons will be able to rule over. And if they don't find other ways to sustain their local economies after hydrocarbons, then they will have failed their families, their monarchies, their family businesses, right? They will have failed their families. And I think that there is something to that in terms of the planning that you see in the Emirates and in Saudi kind of most ambitiously. If they can successfully make these changes, then they become less geopolitically significant but economically still players in the international seen to the extent that other countries like the United States, like the European countries, like China, will want to have good relations with them. Now, those good relations might not be as security focused, but these places will still have a role. If you're a capital exporter, which is what the UAE and the Saudis are, you will have plenty of countries that are interested in having good relations with you. I just don't think the good relations will involve so many American military bases. That's, as you said, that's a decades, 30, 40 years. Right now, the immediate issues, you know, I can't see how we avoid some kind of escalated tensions with Iran if we don't get back to JCPOA. And that's going to focus, I think, a lot of American attention in the region and regional attention back away from the economic issues and on to security. Security rises to the top of the agenda when this happens.
0: What do you think the long-term trajectory of Arab-Iran tensions are if we're looking at an energy transition? Does that mean that Iran is undermined because it gets less from energy? Or does the diversification of the Iranian economy actually give them an advantage? And Iran ends up in 20 years, be more of a security threat. I think Iran, given its population, given the diversity
2: of its economy, given the, the social cohesion in the country, I mean, I think there's a relatively strong sense of Iranian identity and Iranian nationalism. These are all assets going forward. I don't think that that necessarily makes them a threat. I think that it's a real mistake to see money as the core of Iranian influence in the region. Despite relatively successful international sanctions that led to JCPOA, despite the surprisingly successful unilateral sanctions that the Trump administration put on under maximum pressure, both of those periods saw the Iranians really kind of strapped for cash. Did it lead to a reduction in their regional influence? No, not in the least. Because Iranian regional influence doesn't float on a sea of cash, right? It's built on these political relationships with their allies and clients and proxies in these broken Arab countries. Whether Iran is a threat or a partner on a 30-year time frame with Arab countries in the region as the energy transition occurs has a lot to do with the internal politics of Iran. If you have an Iran that's still governed by the current dispensation, still feels that they are threatened by the United States, and still feels that it has something of a revolutionary mission. If you have that, you're going to have an Iran that is willing to extend its influence into the Arab world. If you have an Iran that is more self-confident, perhaps less revolutionary in its sense of its role in the world, feeling less threatened from the United States, then I think you could have an Iran that's more like the Shah's regime, which, yeah, it wanted to have some geopolitical heft in the region, but it also wasn't interfering too much in the domestic politic. But we're much more interested in a state-to-state relationship rather than development of proxies and allies that the Iranian government relies on now for its influence.
0: Greg Gauz, thank you very much for joining us on Babel.
1: Always a pleasure, John. Next up on Babel, John, Natasha, and I zoom out for a more analytical discussion about the trip and how it came to be. So what is President Biden trying to do with this trip?
0: It feels to me like this trip is a triumph of governance over politics. He has a long list of things he's trying to move forward from energy issues to Yemen issues to Iran issues to Israel issues to energy transition issues to tightening the screws on Russia issues and Iraq issues. And it just feels like there's a whole laundry list of things that the president wants to move forward. And engaging with the Saudis makes those things easier. And if you have a scratchy relationship with the Saudis, all those things are harder. So he's trying to bring the region together. He's trying to break the ice with the Saudi leadership and get on with things like more federated defense in the Middle East that gets more Middle Eastern countries talking to each other and relies less on the U.S. actively doing things. It's hard to do it from 3,000 miles away. And so he's trying to do it by showing, yeah, I'm here, but you have to do some stuff too.
3: Yeah. Just taking a step back, I'm not sure I've seen so much writing about a presidential trip to the Middle East is this one in the form of, you know, support, advice, criticisms, and just outrage. And finally, it's been capped with an op ed by the president himself in the Washington Post. And, you know, as John was alluding to, it's sort of this smorgasbord of the administration's accomplishments in the Middle East and sort of vague yet very ambitious goals for this trip. But I think the aim of that article was also to so, sort of frame. This trip as all part of the plan from the very beginning, that it wasn't really part of Ukraine or Iran or any sort of immediate problems faced by the administration. That, in fact, the president's aim the entire time was to sort of reorient, but not rupture, as he said, in that op-ed relations with Saudi Arabia. But I mean, I agree with John. I think that this is about bringing allies together, sort of taking the temperature down in the region in spite of failed Iran nuclear negotiations and, of course, turning down the temperature on energy markets. But overall, I think it's about making friends before you need them. And I think the president's ability to get on the phone with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, no questions asked when there's a crisis like Ukraine, is really important. So I think that this trip in particular to Saudi Arabia is very uncomfortable and awkward sort of acknowledgement of that necessity.
1: So there are lots of issues and issues are easier when you work with your allies, but is he likely to come back with any wins?
3: I mean, I don't see any obvious or immediate wins that result in sort of a big change to inflation and gas prices, which I think Americans are sort of expecting. I don't see any immediate wins on the human rights front, except for, you know, this sustained truce in Yemen, which, you know, is nothing to scoff at, but I think arguably already happened. But I also don't think that the Biden administration is claiming that he will achieve immediate wins. But I I do think that there's a little bit of a danger if there isn't immediate wins on the economic and sort of human rights issues that some people care about, because it could open the president up to, I think, a wider range of sort of condemnation domestically from both sides of the aisle, whether it's justified you know, or not. I think for Republicans, it'd be easy to sort of an easy win to attack the Democrats before the midterms. You know, I could see the argument being something like Trump knew what he was doing by getting close to the Saudis to begin with. And, you know, President Biden doesn't. And that's why your gas prices are very high. I mean, that's not really the truth, but truth hasn't mattered in U.S. politics for a while. And then on the other side, I think Biden, you know, there's the argument that Biden is ignoring human rights violations of Saudi Arabia, of the crown prince, ignoring the Palestinian issue in favor of Arab-Israeli detente, and so on and so forth. And so I think that the administration is really going to have to tread very carefully on this trip and with the readout. And I think, interestingly, I think in President Biden's op-ed, I think he actually tried to frame this as that he already got some of these prerequisite wins in response to criticisms that you know MBS or Mohammed bin Salman did nothing to deserve this kind of rapprochement by saying, that Saudi Arabia helped to restore unity amongst, you know, the Gulf Cooperation Council, that they supported the truce in Yemen, that they're helping to stabilize oil markets, etc. So it's interesting that they're sort of already trying to frame this trip by talking about the wins that have already been gotten.
0: To pick up on that, it feels to me that in baseball terms, the president is sort of maybe thinking about getting a single, maybe a sacrifice single. He is going to get clobbered by a lot of The liberal constituencies are important to the Democratic Party on human rights, on Palestine, on people who say, rather than getting a lifeline from people who are making hydrocarbons, why aren't we accelerating our transition away from hydrocarbons? So I think on a political level, the president doesn't help himself with his core liberal constituencies in the United States. But I still think that from a governance level, the president looks at it and says there are a whole range of things, pieces that we need to move forward. And the way to do it is I just bite the bullet, make a trip to the Middle East.
1: John, you mentioned fault lines in President Biden's party. How is he trying to navigate those competing interests?
0: You know, in some ways, we've seen on issues like his response to Roe v. Wade, on issues of guns, the president's instinct is to be a centrist, to be a moderate, to take for granted the idea that you can find a central compromise. And I'm not sure that American politics are still in that space. It was an interesting piece in the Financial Times that said the United States, in political risk terms, is becoming more like an emerging market. has the politics become more disparate and more polarized. And as you have very different rules, depending on which state you're in, that the United States is changing. And I think that we may see, and we'll see how the week goes, but we may see the president getting beaten up by people he normally feels close to. Because for them, this is just another example of the president seeking some middle ground that doesn't exist. And what the president should be doing is doubling down on human rights and the energy transition and Palestinian self-determination. A whole series of things where the president's instinct is to try to do to the center.
3: Just following up from that, I mean, the Democratic Party is, you know, a very big tent and it's sort of growing by the second. So, we've you know, we've heard condemnation from Adam Schiff. It's not
0: growing in size, but it's growing in in scope.
3: In scope, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that I think includes within the congressional members, but also within the constituency of the Democratic Party. And so, you know, I mean, we've heard condemnation from Adam Schiff and other fairly high ranking members of the Democratic Party for the trip to Saudi. But, you know, you also see some people are, that are in favor if there can be, you know, maybe sustained movement on Yemen, like Chris Murphy. And then others just sort of see it as necessary the middle of the road people like Chris Coons, who, you know, they seem to have the president's ear. And I think, you know, John is right. He's trying to navigate it by saying that this is actually the way that the U.S. can tackle human rights or China or Yemen and a whole other range of issues. He's saying that all of these things are more possible with a relationship with Saudi Arabia and other states in the region than without one. But I think also, you know, more critically, if you're looking at this time period, I think they're navigating it by scheduling it at this time. I'm not sure if this would be possible if there wasn't a truce in Yemen right now. I'm not sure if this would be happening if, you know, Iran nuclear negotiations weren't stalemated or, you know, oil prices were normal. I think a lot of this is happening because of the time. And, you know, I mean, that's probably not going to satisfy naysayers in the U.S. and abroad. And I think the danger kind of is that, you know, in the interests of unity before midterms, I think some Democrats may come around, but I think for some of them, their constituencies are probably not going to be happy with this trip. I mean, I don't think that there's a lot of Americans closely following foreign policy, but a presidential picture with Mohammed bin Salman, which is likely, according to Gauss, I think could, you know, potentially hurt them and show more divisions within this party that's already a very big tent.
0: Well it's likely according to somebody from the White House who I spoke to a week ago, what that picture looks like how it's framed, where it's taken from, what the president's doing, what the crown prince is doing. I'm sure people have tried to game this all out, but what comes out is what comes out. And sometimes the iconic photos are posed and sometimes the iconic photos just happen. And we still don't know where we're going to be on that spectrum. Hallie Tusi from Politico argued that in many ways, the photo that comes out of this trip is going to be the most durable residue of the trip. Partly depends on the photo, but it's certainly possible.
1: So let's zoom out of U.S. domestic politics just for a moment. How do China and Russia factor into U.S. thinking about this trip?
0: Well, I think that the United States is keenly interested in showing that it is both a durable and reliable partner and a long-term partner. China has been increasingly Broad in its approach to Middle Eastern states. Danny, when we were in Saudi Arabia a few weeks ago, some people told us that the Chinese have actively expanded their dialogue beyond merely economic and trade issues to talking about more strategic issues. And the United States is interested in ensuring that it is the principal guarantor of energy security because a lot of the energy goes. To US allies. And what doesn't go to US allies goes to US adversaries. So that gives the US more leverage. I think there's also a sense that Russia looks for weak and vulnerable states and is almost like a vulture looking at places that are having problems and swooping in and and trying to capitalize where it can at low cost, keeping Russia out from the trouble that Russia makes, keeping China supporting a U.S. security framework rather than undermining it or supplanting it. I think that's the way the U.S. wants the region to be, but you can't do it if the United States isn't seen to be present, if the United States isn't seen to be interested and committed. So I think what I think is going to come out of this, and I'm surprised there's not been more coverage of it, I think there has to be some sort of U.S. articulation of what the Middle East continues to mean to the United States. We haven't had it for a long time. In many ways, we're still coasting on the Carter Doctrine, which was a line in the State of the Union that Zbigniew Brzezinski wrote and inserted in 1980. I'm not sure we're going to have a Biden Doctrine, but I think there has to be some sort of statement that this administration will refer to and future administrations will refer to to demonstrate That the U.S. isn't on its way out of the Middle East. The U.S. is the principal external factor creating security in the Middle East. And the U.S. intends to and effectively does create a secure region.
3: Just feeding off of that, I think that, you know, it's interesting that you close with the Carter Doctrine. Because I think increasingly so, you know, you had a Carter Doctrine. You had something from the Democratic Party, that was taken by other parties, you know, successively for decades as the doctrine for the Middle East. And I think perhaps a lot of these Middle Eastern regimes are probably asking themselves if something like that is even possible anymore in the United States. The Middle East is no longer kind of a bipartisan issue. And I think, you know, in a way, China and Russia have been sort of courting the Gulf states and Israel for that very, what they see as weakness when it comes to that. So I I do think that this is important because it's reaffirming sort of a commitment by the Biden administration. But I think for a lot of countries, you know, they're also going to continue to sort of hedge their bets. And, you know, I think the reality is that this trip somewhat proves that they're quite effectively playing the great powers off of one another. But I did want to say one thing about this, because in these conversations, you know, in in our conversation, a lot of the op-eds that have been happening We've been talking a lot about the regimes and the governments and not sort of the people that they rule. And I think, you know, when the Ukraine crisis started and America told the world, who's with us and saving democracy from the evils of tyranny, right? You know, I think a lot of people around the world, but especially in the Middle East kind of scratch their heads, right? And in the words of one of my friends from Syria, you know, at least with Russia, we know what we're dealing with. The U.S. is just a lot of talk about human rights and democracy. And, you know, President Biden has been saying that Ukraine is about a global war between democracy and autocracy. And, you know, I agree. And I'm really scared about the future, both in the U.S. and elsewhere, because I think democracy, human rights and liberal values are regressing everywhere. But I do think if the U.S. is trying to convince the world that the United States is a better option than China and Russia now, perhaps more than ever, I think it also needs to show that.
0: But there's also a problem that the American people are generally less interested in foreign policy than any time in the future. And they're profoundly uninterested in the Middle East in general. And I still recall the Democratic Party platform put foreign policy at the very end, and the Middle East at the very end of foreign policy, and the Arab Israeli conflict at the very end of the Middle East section. And I think that there is a certain exhaustion after fighting wars in the Middle East for 20 years that most Americans think didn't actually advance American national security, that the president, on the one hand, wants to assert the U.S. is really going to be here for the long term, but has to weigh that against the American public that says the infinite time and infinite money and infinite lives into fixing this region, and you're not going to. And I think that's the line the president has to walk again. His instinct is, can't we all find a middle ground at a time when it's increasingly hard to find a middle ground, not only in American politics, but in global affairs, where I think we're we're seeing a lot of this polarization happening everywhere.
1: John, Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Danny.
0: Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at Mideast.